Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. For nearly two decades, measles had been eliminated in the United States. Now Reuters reports federal officials say the country is dealing with the worst outbreak since 1992, with more than 1,200 measles cases this year across 31 states. Now, the rise in measles cases led Connecticut's Department of Public Health to release school-by-school vaccination data this past spring. And that information could be released again next month. But a Bristol, Connecticut couple is suing the state to block the information from going public. Now, coming up, we speak to a UConn law professor about the merits of that lawsuit. First, did this headline catch your attention? Board passes motion to allow Wolcott, Connecticut superintendent to pay ransom after cyber attack. Ransom involving a school? How often does that happen? More often than you may think. A recent New York Times story reports more than 40 municipalities nationwide have been the victims of cyber attacks so far in 2019. Now, coming up, we're going to hear from the town of Wolcott's police chief about the situation before the Wolcott school district there. First, and we're also going to check in with the town of Ridgefield's selectman about whether his town and others in Connecticut are prepared to thwart similar cyber attacks. But first, joining us now by phone is Lynn Friedman. She's head of our chair of data, privacy and cybersecurity at Robinson and Cole, and she works with municipalities and school systems about cyber risks. Uh, Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you. So um, I mentioned that we're going to hear more from uh, the Wolcott uh, police chief uh, about how that school district is dealing with essentially their computer systems being locked down uh, for several months because of a hacker. Uh, But first, when we think about ransomware, describe to us what that is exactly. So basically, ransomware is when usually an employee clicks on a phishing email and attached to that phishing email is malware that once you click on it, it introduces ransomware. And almost immediately, the system is locked down. So the hacker is able to encrypt all of the data in that system. So no one has access to any of the data. And the only way that you can unlock that data is if you pay a ransom, which we're seeing uh, increasing over time. Mm. Now, Lynn, we're all uh, familiar with different computer viruses. But when we think about ransomware and hearing about uh, computer systems being locked down until a ransom is paid, uh, when did this uh, activity really start to see an uptick? So uh, ransomware is almost immediate, and we're seeing more and more ransomware attacks because now some victims are agreeing to pay the ransom instead of instead of trying to, to put their system back online through backup systems. So literally, it happens immediately, and no one, no employee has access to any of the data. We're talking about this here in Connecticut because of some uh, local municipalities and school districts uh, being targeted. But uh, I had mentioned this New York Times article that said so far this year, 40 municipalities um, have been targeted by uh, ransomware attacks. So is this something that over the last couple of years we've been seeing an increase, Lynn? 
Uh, we've really seen an increase in the last year, and, and in 2019, it's, it's, it's been exponential. In fact, one of the worst cases was 23 Texas municipalities last month in a coordinated, a, a coordinated attack uh, were the victim of ransomware all at the same time, 23 Texas municipalities at the same time. So we're really seeing an uptick now more than ever before. Mm. Uh, that particular uh, case or uh, several cases in Texas, you mentioned 2223 um, being targeted at once. Uh, can you give us some more details on how that happened? Were they all were they using a particular system, all of them, and that's how the hacker was able to get in? Well, the hacker was able to uh, take advantage of vulnerabilities in a coordinated attack, which we've never seen before. I don't know. I haven't. I wasn't part of that case. I don't know the details of the forensics, but I can tell you that the attacker was able to identify vulnerabilities in all 23 municipalities' systems and attacked at the same time. So they all went down at the same time. The same thing happened on a lesser level with several school systems in Louisiana uh, that all were the victim of the same ransomware, and the the governor of Louisiana had to declare an emergency. And so uh, what happens in the sense, do uh, municipalities, uh, are they paying these hackers to get their systems back up and running? Well, we're seeing different examples. The, a well-known case is the city of Baltimore, uh, who the mayor emphatically denied paying the ransom and then, in fact, spent more than $10 million trying to get the system up and running again and uh, updated. So um, we're seeing different things. There are two municipalities in Florida. Riviera Beach, Florida, agreed to pay $600,000 to hackers because they deemed it would be more expensive to try to get their system back up and running or to upgrade it. And the same thing happened with Lake City, Florida. They paid $460,000 to hackers um, because they determined that it would be less expensive to pay the hackers than to upgrade the system. Um, I will say that paying hackers is just going to, you know, continue the problem because the entire business plan for these hackers is to get paid ransom and they go to the next victim. Uh, when we continue to pay them, obviously the business plan is working and they made over $4 billion from U.S. companies last year. Four billion dollars. Wow, that's yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of money. When we think about these hackers, Lynn, who are they? Do we know? So um, most of the hackers are coming from uh, foreign countries. Some of them are nation states: China, Ukraine, Russia. Uh, we're also seeing we're seeing individual hackers. A lot of it is coming from Nigeria. This is just from my experience. Obviously, the FBI knows a whole lot more and is very uh, deep into these investigations. But we're most of it's coming from foreign foreign nationals, from nation states, and also foreign countries. Mm. Uh, when uh, we hear that uh, local school boards or uh, smaller towns are being targeted, is this because hackers know that there might be some vulnerabilities there? I mean, what's the strategy? So. The strategy is is absolutely going for the easiest target, and uh, it's well known that counties, municipalities, and school systems have not uh, put the budget in effect and upgraded systems, so they have legacy systems or they have systems that are unable to be patched. And so 
uh, hackers know that the resources are limited and therefore these uh, governmental entities are at high risk. This is where we live. On the phone with me, Lynn Friedman, Chair of Data Privacy and Cybersecurity at Robinson & Cole. She advises municipalities and school systems about cyber risk. We're talking about that today here on Where We Live because uh, the most recent uh, case happening in the town of Wolcott, Connecticut, uh, the school district, uh, their uh, computer system uh, being held hostage, uh, so to speak, by hackers. Uh, We wanted to hear more about uh, that situation in Wolcott. So joining us now uh, by phone is Chief Edward Stevens, the police chief of the town of Wolcott. Uh, chief Stevens, welcome to our show. Good morning, Lucy. How are you? We're doing well. So so first, tell us, uh, when did the Wolcott public school system, when did they get targeted by these hackers? What happened exactly? Well, I guess back, it was back on June 13th when it first started. Now, I, again, I was not made aware of it until last week when I did read it in the newspaper. Uh, they had contacted CTEC and thought that that was the route to go to report these types of crime. Uh, and what they did was they infected the computer. Wait, so this that happened in June, but the police chief uh, wasn't told about it till last week? That's correct. Wasn't told. I read about it in the paper. Wow. And so you mentioned CTEC. So uh, tell us exactly what that is. It's the uh, Connecticut Intelligence Center. What CTEC is, it's like a gathering house of, for information for law enforcement throughout the state of Connecticut. It's a very great, it's a great organization. There are members of the uh, federal, our federal partners, state partners, and local uh, officers all involved in that. You know, we have, uh, I know right next door, Waterbury has a detective assigned. There's, there's several troopers there. There's several, like I said, from the federal agencies. So what they are, again, they're a fantastic resource. If I have, let's say, a, bur- a robbery in Wolcott and someone has a robbery in uh, Rockville, say, uh, and we compare notes, they gather the information, then they inform all the other towns of what's going on, what we're looking for. So it is a great resource. Uh, they're very knowledgeable about counterterrorism and terrorism, things like that. They monitor all that. Now, but- the person who notified them, I mean, they do, there are uh, crimes, computer crimes, you know, that they learn about. But actually investigating, they'll usually farm it out to other agencies. Y- you understand what I mean? Yeah. To make sure everyone is aware of this. But you're they the local law enforcement, so... Correct. Uh, <laughs> we, should, we should have been the ones who contacted CTEC to tell them what we had, what we're working on. You know, the superintendent and the IT person evidently weren't aware of the, what to do with it. So the IT person at the time, who they no longer have, the company... Now, they were in the middle of a tra- transition to a different company. He had said he'd contact CTEC and thought that was the route to go, which, as we know, was not the correct way to do it. So that shows uh, one uh, gap that uh, systems don't know exactly who to contact when something like this happens. But you'd mentioned you read about it in the paper. So there's been a lot of media attention because the school board in uh, Wolcott, um, they approved about $10,000 to possibly be paid to these hackers. So tell us about that and what what your role is as police chief and how you're advising the school district in this. Well, once again, when I seen it in the paper, I did contact the superintendent to find out, you know, why we were not notified, what is going on. He had went to the school board because any type of payment similar to that, any money going out has to go through the school board. He explained to them what they had and requested the money, and they did grant him the money, which has not been paid as of 
us talking right now, and you know who knows if it, if it ever will be paid. I you know told them do not pay anything. We have our federal partners. We have people from the state uh, that are going to get involved. We're going to try to work on this, investigate this. Hopefully, we won't have to pay anything. Now, uh, again, a lot of times when they do hold computers at ransom, they're asking for a, a lot of money. You know, you're, you're talking fifty, eighty, a hundred thousand. If you go through the internet, you can see what some of these uh, places do pay. Uh, this was relatively small. However, we don't want to pay anything. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's, we're going to investigate this, and if there's a way we can prevent this, we definitely will prevent it. Because law enforcement, we don't like to pay anything to any person who's holding someone ransom or something ransom. So we did. So reach- we told them to hold off. Mm-hmm. We're, ha- you know, we have been meeting. We will have another meeting with a, all the uh, our partners to figure out which way to to handle this. To mm-hmm. hopefully find out who is doing this, whether we, you know through IP addresses, although it is very difficult. It is, a lot of these people are from out of the country doing this. So we, you know, I don't want to get too much into the investigation of what we'll be doing, our, our methods. So we did reach out to the school district. We got a, a statement from the superintendent, Anthony Gasper, um, who also writes, uh, no ransom has yet been paid. And we continue to communicate and work with state and local authorities on this matter. Uh, but I'm curious, with school uh, back in session, so essentially the school district, uh, all the schools, um, they're not able to access important files on their system? How are they able to, to do their, uh, you know, their, no. their job each day? I'm just curious if we could tell well, us more. Sure. Well, what had happened was the high school, the middle school, and the central office had a backup server. They were able to receive a lot of the information from the backup server, which is what everyone should have. This way, if someone does hold your one server for ransom, you can cut ties with that, get rid of you know that server and whatever's infected there, and get your information from the other server, I believe. Uh, but they were able to retrieve a lot of information from the backup. The elementary schools, the three elementary schools, the things that were in there, like lesson plans and things uh, for the teachers, that has been locked down. There has been a lot of uh, uh, manual entries now. They had to re-enter a lot of things now, you know, to try to catch up. Now, the computers in the schools are working. It's not, you know, I had seen someone saying uh, the poor kids have no access to to computers. That is not true. This information that had been saved is what is being ransomed. So, uh, Chief uh, Stevens, thank you for that clarification. But because there were, you know, a few months in between when uh, the school district was targeted and when you found out as uh, chief of police, uh, was there a concern that uh, the hackers um, may have been able to target other state agencies and they wouldn't have, or, I'm sorry, uh, town uh, departments and no one would have known about what was happening? Well, that's, that was part of my concern. Actually, if something like this happens, you want to know right away because, number one, we want to protect the other – are the other departments in the town of Wolcott, you know, going to be a target? Did they try to get into the police department? Did they try to get into town hall? We would have immediately notified our IT people that we have separate IT people. Uh, the school department has their own. Like I said, as a matter of fact, they were transitioning over, I believe, July 1st. They had their own. We have our own. But not just our own. Again, we would have immediately, you know, uh, started the investigation. We would have notified CTEC. We would have gave them the information we had to get out to all the other area towns and cities on what is going on here. So hopefully they can prevent this ahead of time in case they are 
you know, going to be targets. Mm-hmm. Uh, with this also, is it's it? like anything else. The sooner you know, the more you can get the word out yes. to prevent anything further from happening. So with this also, uh, Chief Stevens, is Lynn Friedman, uh, who's with Robinson and Cole. She advises municipalities and school systems about cyber risks. Uh, Lynn, you've been able to hear a bit of uh, what happened in Wolkett. Is that typical of a small town uh, where uh, there are separate IT uh, departments and there seem to be a communication fail, uh, letting even the local police know that it ha- what had happened. Sure. Um, hi, Chief. Uh, How are you, Liz? This is, this is pretty common, and it's because it's a, a dispersed system. It's, there's, there's a lot of different systems. There's a lot of different people involved, um, which is why it's so important, as the Chief said, to have an incident response plan. And we don't see a lot of small municipalities that have an incident response plan, so they have a coordinated response when something like this happens. And obviously one of the things to, to do is to bring in the local police department and also other uh, partners. Uh, the other thing that I think is real important that the chief said was uh, to be able to communicate with others in the state because the information that Walcott has is going to be very important for other municipalities so that they can blacklist certain certain IP addresses. They can utilize the information that Walcott has regarding the incident so that they can prevent the same thing from happening. So um, a coordinated response, knowing who to call, making sure that you, you know the person that you're calling in such an emergency, coordinating the response and providing information to other municipalities is very helpful to prevent this from, from occurring in another municipality. Now, Lynn, you mentioned depending on the municipality, so say a city like Baltimore, Atlanta, which ignored paying uh, hackers who uh, targeted those cities, but they also have resources to rebuild a network, although very expensive in the millions of dollars. Uh, we heard uh, the Woolkit police chief, uh, Edward Stevens, say that they don't want to pay uh, the hacker. And so I'm just curious, you know, how do you guide municipalities on the best uh, choices uh, to make in terms of uh, short-term, uh, they'll get get access to their computer system, but the long-term, can you really trust a criminal that they won't target again? Sure. It's, it's really difficult. Um, each scenario is different. And obviously, larger municipalities have more resources. Um, and when you're talking about smaller municipalities, uh, they're probably not going to be asked to pay the same amount of ransom as a, as a large municipality. Um, be clear, no one wants to pay a ransom. No one is advising anyone to pay a ransom. Again, as I said before, when when municipalities or any other entity pays a ransom, it just gives them incentive to continue to attack others. So when you are talking about the pros and cons, it's really a business decision for the municipality uh, to determine whether or not, one, do they have insurance that may cover do, cover the cost? Two, do they have a robust backup system so that it takes a week or days instead of months to get the system back up and running? That is, is something that you're going to consider. And then, um, obviously, how much is it going to cost to to bring that system back up and running to uh, start a new system we saw in Baltimore how uh, very expensive it was for them 
to come up and running, to, to come back up and running. So you see these two municipalities in Florida that made the decision to pay the ransom hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars because they made the business decision that it would cost more to bring the system back up and running and to upgrade it. So it's really a, a case-by-case analysis. Uh, Lynn, uh, you, made, you brought up insurance. I'm curious, uh, do more and more uh, municipalities have insurance to cover cyber attacks like this, where insurers are going to uh, be able to uh, pay the ransom, so to speak? So we're finding that larger municipalities are more savvy about cyber liability insurance than smaller municipalities. Um, Cyber liability insurance is very tricky. There are exclusions. Some policies will not cover ransom. Others will. So it it really depends. But but smaller, I'm finding smaller municipalities uh, do not have coverage for these types of incidents um, where larger larger municipalities sometimes do. Uh, Chief Stevens, who's with us from the town of Wolcott, Connecticut, again, uh, the school district uh, being targeted by ransomware back in June, even though the school board uh, authorized uh, the amount of money that the hackers were asking for, I believe uh, uh, nearly $10,000. So far, no ransom has been paid yet by the superintendent of schools to get their computer system back up and running. So what are the next steps, uh, Chief Stevens? And I'm curious, you mentioned the Connecticut Intelligence Center as a good resource for municipalities, but does the, does the state of Connecticut need to do more to help uh, towns like yours? Well, again, all law, law enforcement, we're all partners. If we need something, you know, directly from the state, we can just contact them to, you know, have them assist us. Like I said, there have been talks. We have meetings with uh, with the federal uh, agents, you know, the FBI, because a lot of these are out of the country, you know, so the the jurisdiction would extend beyond actually Wolcott, beyond Connecticut possibly, and possibly behind the United States. So we have to check with everyone. Now, you might have another organization, another school in the country that experiences the same exact thing from the same exact people with the same exact codes they're looking for. So again, we're going to basically compare notes and, you know, see which way it would be best to move forward. And, you know, like Lynn said, sometimes, uh, you know, you hear about all the public entities being attacked, you know, being held for ransom. And you, I'm sure there's many private uh, companies that have the same thing where they decide what is better. Is it uh, cheaper to just pay the small amounts than redo our whole system? You know, which, again, uh, law enforcement, we don't like that because they can call you back in another month or another month after that. And, you know, more money, more money, more money. But we have we have to compare notes uh, all around the country. You know, we would do this through the uh, FBI to see what's the best route to go, you know, in investigating this and getting the system back and trying to hopefully, you know, in the long run, bring these people to justice, if at all possible. Again, like I said, you get them from all over the world doing this. Well, I want to thank Chief Edward Stevens again. He's the police chief of the town of Wolcott, Connecticut, for joining us today here on Where We Live. Uh, chief Stevens, thanks so much for your time. All right, Lucy, thank you very much, Lynn. Have a good day. Bye-bye. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Lynn Friedman uh, is my other guest. She's going to stick around. She's chair of data privacy and cybersecurity at Robinson and Cole, where she advises municipalities and school systems about cyber risks. Now, we wanted to know more about how other Connecticut municipalities are responding to news that cyber attacks on towns and cities are on the rise. So after the break, uh, the selectman of Ridgefield, Connecticut, the first selectman will be joining us. He's also president of Connecticut cost 
the Council of Small Towns. You can join us, too. Uh, what's your take on ransomware targeting maybe where you live? Join the conversation, 888-720-WNPR. That's 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Our personal data is in the hands of a lot of people, from the federal government to your local school district or town hall. But does that mean your information is safe? That depends. Today we're talking about the rise of ransomware attacks in municipalities when local computer systems are locked down by hackers who demand ransom. Is this something you worry about that will happen to your town government or school district? You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, My guest uh, via phone, Lynn Friedman, who's chair of data privacy and cybersecurity at Robinson & Cole. She advises municipalities and school systems about cyber. Risks. We wanted to hear from other municipalities about uh, this threat. So joining us now, also by phone, is Rudy Marconi, first selectman of Ridgefield, Connecticut, and also president of COST, which is the Connecticut Council of Small Towns. Uh, Selectman Marconi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good morning. So I'm just curious. We just heard from uh, Wolkett's police chief. Uh, You're from the town of Ridgefield. Uh, When did uh, you and other officials start thinking about ransomware and ways to prevent it? Well, not only did we consider it here locally, but also from a more regional basis. In addition to being president of COST, Council of Small Towns, I'm also chair of Region 5 of Department of Emergency Management and Homeland Security. So in our discussions there, of course, we are uh, looking at this issue from an Eversource power supply perspective. But then when we look at all of the municipalities that belong to our region, approximately 43, we begin to look at some of these smaller municipalities who just do not have the ability or the financial uh, ability to purchase and install the equipment, the software that will elevate their level of security to protect against ransomware. Mm -hmm. So in that capacity, we have begun a subcommittee that is led by our IT director here in Richfield, Andrew Neblett, who is meeting with other IT people in the state to discuss not how we react to a ransomware attack like the chief was just talking about, but more importantly, how do you prevent it? We want to be on the front end of this. And that's what's going Mm -hmm. to take probably several months or more deciding how do we do this? What do we need to do? And then how do we distribute that information and educate people on a regional statewide basis. So, Selectman uh, Marconi, so tell us, in Ridgefield, what are the steps you've taken, uh, you and your uh, team, uh, your staff, to, to make sure that um, the town doesn't fall for one of these ransomwares? Tell us what, your, what systems you have in place. Sure. One of the things, and again, the chief mentioned this, is to have an, a very good backup system. This doesn't mean you're 100% protected, but it'll limit the amount of downtime you experience. Andrew Neblett is here, and I'll have him elaborate a little bit more. Good morning. Um, Yeah, the backups are critical and vital, and what to make it really secure is you should have, and this is where money is an issue, you shouldn't have just one backup, but you should have another backup that is taken offline after the backup's been done. That way it's not connected on the network at all, and the hackers and the ransomware 
uh, can't get onto it because what happens with a lot of backups is they back up the infected PCs or data or programs that cause the, the ransomware lockdown. And then when they go to restore it, they still have the issue. Uh, so you're the IT guy for the town of Ridgefield. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, so I heard, uh, Sleckman Marconi, you mentioned that you know not all uh, towns have the resources to make sure that uh, this kind of ransomware doesn't happen. So I'm just curious in terms of, are we talking about how many towns within cost that may not have a dedicated IT person or knows that you need to do backups fairly regularly? I would say probably the majority, because when you look at the number of towns who are members of cost, we have a threshold of 35,000 uh, population for each municipality. When you look at that, there are over 110 municipalities, but many, many of them are down in the 1,500, 2,500, 2,000 population areas, very rural, and don't have the IT and may solicit outside resources to give some degree of protection, but not the degree that they need. And so uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, Selectman uh, Marconi, uh, so uh, you have these uh, different checks in place, but you're also making sure that uh, the different uh, employees of the town of Ridgefield aren't falling for these phishing emails. So tell us exactly what you do. (laughs) Well, Andrew uh, actually sent out a phishing expedition to see how many of our employees actually clicked on a drop-down and we recorded every one of them. And we had about 20, 18 to 20, uh, who actually went for the bait and clicked on something that could have contained a ransomware virus. Wow. And those people have been contacted and notified that you went for the bait. We have a policy here. So what we are going to do is to remind everybody and firm up our policy that if you are suspected of phishing, and clicking on those uh, drop-downs, uh, you're going to lose some uh, responsibility, as well as restricting our own network and the ability for people to go outside, for example, to open a window in Gmail while they're working and then go back to that and read their own personal emails, get into that, hit a drop-down, and that infects the entire system. We are looking at the possibility of restricting that kind of ability in the day-to-day office environment. Interesting. And since your IT director is there, did you say your name was Andy? Andrew. Yeah, Andrew. Andrew. Uh, so tell us, uh, so when we hear about uh, some of the employees that took the bait, so to speak, what did it look ex- like exactly or when they get a phishing email that makes them think that this is actually a legitimate link that they're clicking on? Well, it came. It says it came from the IT administrator and that it was time to change their network login password. And it looked very innocent but I have uh, sent out emails, and uh, we've had uh, meetings about it as well. When I send out an email, there's a certain mark in that email that you know it's from me. Um, if it doesn't have that mark in there, it's not from me. And they didn't look for the mark, and it looked innocent enough, and they clicked on it, and then they were welcomed by, ha-ha, gotcha, <laughs> you know, pop-up screen. And so 
Um, it wasn't many, fortunately, but we continue the training and we'll do so in the future. I like that the haha got you, not uh-oh, you're in trouble. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, jo- have a sense of humor here. Right. Um, joining us uh, again um, is the IT uh, director for the town of Richfield, Andrew Neblett. Uh, also with us is the first selectman, Rudy Marconi, uh, who is the president of Connecticut Cost Council of Small Towns, talking about how uh, municipalities are looking to prevent ransomware attacks. Uh, uh, with us by phone also is Lynn Friedman, who um, advises municipalities and school systems about cyber risk for Robinson and Cole. So, Lynn, you're hearing how uh, the town of Ridgefield is being very proactive. Uh, they're working with other uh, towns their size are uh, in their region uh, so that they have best practices. What can you tell us about some of the things you're t- advising municipalities to do to make sure that they don't uh, get uh, attacked uh, in this way? Andrew, way to go. That's what I want to say. Um, well, thank you very much. Yeah, way to go. So the, the things that municipalities uh, should be concentrating on include um, limiting, as Andrew said, limiting employees' ability to go to certain websites, to have strong spam filters, to do these phishing campaigns. Education is really key, and it can't just be one and done. Employees still don't understand the their own their own smartphones and the capabilities of their own smartphones let alone uh, thinking about the fact that a that a hacker from a foreign country is actually trying to target them which is what's happening they're like why would they want to target me so employees are really key to to um, being able to protect a municipality or really any entity from a ransomware attack. The other thing that I think is is real important, and Andrew, sounds like you're really on top of it, is also to make sure that employees are notifying their IT personnel like Andrew when they receive a suspicious email, because these phishing emails are no longer, you've won the Nigerian lottery. Like, we know that that's false, and they're very, very sophisticated now where they, they're, they're changing one letter in an email address and they're actually buying IP domains from, from companies that are allowing you to buy I, I, IP domains with one letter missing. So you hover over the, the email address and there's only one letter transposed. That's how sophisticated it's getting. And employees need to really be uh, on the alert, but also to be notifying Andrew and his colleagues about suspicious emails so then they can blacklist those IP addresses. Mm-hmm. Um, it's The key is with employees, it really is, and Andrew, great yeah. job. So I'm, I'm, you keep referencing the IT director for the town of Ridgefield, Andrew Neblett. I just want to make sure our listeners know um, who that is. But um, you know, I'm curious, you keep mentioning employees need to uh, be able to uh, contact their IT and know what, what uh, to click and not to click. What about leadership uh, within a government? Uh, you know, are, are they also following the rules, so to speak, and, and making sure that they're not also uh, falling for these phishing, uh, these phishing emails, Lynn? So uh, it's, it's well known that, that it applies to everybody. From top to down, everybody needs to follow the policies and procedures and best practices. Uh, many times people... Uh, think that they don't have to and they're trying to do things too quickly or they're too important and and we see that uh, that that they are 
being targeted, and if they're not adhering to best practices, uh, they could bring the whole company or municipality down. So it's really important that the culture of security comes from the top and that those who are leading the municipality, those in leadership positions, are, are showing everybody else how important it is and also are following best practices. Us uh, first select men, uh, Rudy Marconi from Ridgefield. I'm going to put you on the spot. Are you following best practices? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you always have to lead by example. And no matter what the job is or what the topic is, if you don't set the example, your employees are going to feel that it doesn't matter. And by doing that, I can go to each and everyone's desk and talk to them and say, look, you know, you cannot access your email. Now, one thing that I spoke to Andrew about, and that is we're going to drive people to their cell phones. And that will have an impact on the hourly output that an employee, if you want to get into those metrics, Mm. um, might have. So we're conscious of that as well. So in the development of a formal policy, we may in fact have uh, the restrictions relative to what I mentioned before and the inability to access your personal information on a desktop in your office but you may be allowed to take so many minutes an hour to access your private phone to look at that information, a babysitter or some personal needs that are important to you. We need to recognize that and formalize that process. You know, uh, first Selectman Marconi, we just have a couple of minutes left, but I'm curious, uh, you know, this is something that municipalities are thinking about and and trying to be proactive, but are you hearing from uh, residents in Ridgefield and for listeners who are hearing the show now, should they be contacting their town hall or their school district and finding out, um, are their IT systems up to date? Are they making sure that they've got these steps in place? God, when we get outside of the municipal arena, that's a very difficult question. I wouldn't advise any personal uh, residents about any of their IT needs. Uh, they can take what a municipality is doing and follow that lead in their own personal world. But should they be uh, contacting their local town hall to see if the town government is doing the best that they can to protect their information? If they want to ask that question, absolutely. Um, and and they'll know what we're doing, not in detail, obviously, uh, but we are not afraid to let people know that we're taking every precaution we possibly can to prevent ransomware. Again, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, we want to be proactive. We want to be out in front of this, and education is critical. As Lynn said, education, education, education. People need to be aware of the damage that can happen by allowing a ransomware into our system. Well, I want to thank First Selectman Rudy Marconi of the town of Ridgefield, also president of Connecticut Cost Council of Small Towns. His IT director, Andrew Neblett, also jumped on the line. Thank you for uh, telling us about the steps you have in place in the town of Ridgefield. I also want to thank Lynn Friedman, who chairs data privacy and cybersecurity at Robinson and Cole. Uh, Lynn, thanks for your time. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Now, after the break, we're going to shift topics to get the latest on a fight between the state of Connecticut and a Bristol couple over school vaccination data. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. For nearly 20 years, measles had been eliminated in the U.S. Now Reuters reports federal officials say the country's dealing with the worst outbreak since 1992, with more than 1,200 cases this year across 31 states. Now the rise in measles cases led Connecticut's Department of Public Health to release school-by-school vaccination data last spring. And that information could be released again next month. But a Bristol, Connecticut couple is suing the state to block the information from the public. We wanted to talk more about the, the merits of that lawsuit. So joining us now by phone is John Kogan, associate professor at UConn Law School. He focuses on health law. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Thank you. I mentioned that this all started because of the Department of Public Health releasing last year's school-by-school vaccine data in the spring, especially with that measles outbreak in New York. And that data was really surprising to lawmakers because numerous schools were below the 95 percent vaccination uh, threshold, the herd immunity, uh, so to speak. Uh, We're hearing about this Bristol, Connecticut couple now suing the state of Connecticut. They don't want to see that information school-by-school data, I should be specific, uh, released. Um, So what is their argument? Well, first of all, uh, we need to make clear that the information that the state wants to release and has released in the past doesn't identify any uh, individual students. There are no uh, the vaccina- vaccination records of any individuals are not released. It's, it's aggregate data on a school-by-school basis. So uh, their claim is um, that the uh, uh, release of this information will cause them mental anguish and harm through cyberbullying, and that the release of the information also violates their equal protection rights under the state and federal constitution. And their argument also, they also argue that the release of the information violates Department of Health regulations. So what are the regulations that the state has to hold to in terms of of what is uh, permissible to be released public? Well, um, the regulation, uh, there's a, the the complaint points to a specific regulation that says that the state shall collect this aggregate data from the schools. And the regulation also has a provision that says this information is confidential. So when you look at the state regulation, that that Mm -hmm. is the regulation written by the Department of Health, it looks like this information should be kept confidential. The problem with that argument is that um, there's a statute that requires the release of public information. Um, Every state has it, the federal government has it, uh, has similar statutes, and that statute says Uh, sets out what information should be released. It sets out some exceptions for that information. This type of data doesn't really fall under uh, the exceptions for that information. Um, And there's a provision, uh, release of that information, and there's a provision in the statute that says, you know, if if there's a state regulation written by a department that conflicts with the statute, this statute controls. In other words, if uh, the various departments that work for the state cannot on their own, declare information confidential if it's defined as public information under uh, under the statute. Mm. Uh, you mentioned that the of the claims, this particular couple says this school level data again, not individual students, but school overall, the percentage of students that are uh, vaccinated. Does that violate their privacy? Not really. Um, <laughs> Their argument is that once this data goes out, 
people will know which schools are not fully uh, don't have fully vaccinated uh, a fully vaccinated student body, and that will subject them to you know bullying online or attacks in the paper. The problem is that um, there's nothing in this information which identifies any particular individual. And to the extent that folks know who's getting vaccinated or who's not getting vaccinated, that information comes from the Internet. And it comes from these people filing the lawsuit and disclosing that they're not uh, vaccinating their children. Mm -hmm. So the information is available uh, to the extent that it's available. It's available from other sources. It's not available from the state information. So the release of this data doesn't give anybody any clue as to who is or who isn't getting vaccinated. So there's no uh, violation of anybody's privacy. But as you mentioned, it's a public health issue that parents in general should know if a particular school has a lower threshold of the recommend, recommend, re- recommended vaccina- vaccination rates uh, to make sure that, you know, if, they, if their children is immune compromised, maybe this is not a particular place they want their child to be enrolled. Exactly, exactly. So, for example, if you have a child who is, for example, getting uh, being treated for cancer and the immunization rate is really low at a particular school, you may not want your child to go to that school, particularly if there is a pending outbreak or existing outbreak like measles or any other childhood disease where people are not getting vaccinated. Uh, listeners and residents have uh, seen over the past uh, couple of weeks the even Connecticut's Department of Public Health Commissioner uh, Renee Coleman Mitchell initially telling lawmakers and the press she wouldn't release the 2018-2019 school year data, citing that there's actually a low number of measles cases in Connecticut. Then we saw uh, Governor Lamont um, pretty much uh, overruling uh, the Department of Public Health Commissioner, saying that data will be released, again, school-by-school school immunization data once verified for accuracy. So what's your take on this back and forth between, uh, again, a state agency and the governor's office? Well, I, I don't know what exactly these folks are thinking or what, you know, discussions they've had between them, but there are several issues at play which could be affecting the way they look at things. One is that there is a pending lawsuit. So um, despite the fact that uh, the state ultimately might win, the, probably will win this lawsuit because I, I, th- I don't think the, the claims will stand up, um, it, the state shouldn't be releasing this data before a judge has ruled on it. Um, you know, the, the state, uh, the, 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 it will anger the judge. Um, it's a pending litigation matter. So they really need to wait for the lawsuit to finish, even if, they're, even if their case is really strong. Um, you don't want to sort of preempt what the judge is going to do. So, um, uh, so that could play into it. Also playing into it could be, you know, the sort of political backlash against not releasing this data. The number of folks that want the data released probably vastly outnumbers the, the number of people that want it suppressed. Um, and also, it's really public information. Um, so I think all these factors are, are, are playing into the decisions made by the Department of Health and the governor's office. Um, so I don't know why they, the Department of Health initially said they weren't going to release the data, but it is public information. I know, I know requests have been made for it. 
So ultimately, after the litigation is over, they're going to have to release it. I did check in with uh, Connecticut Mirror reporter Jenna Carlesa, who's been covering this story. She says uh, the judge will first hear uh, the state's motion to dismiss this lawsuit uh, before a hearing is scheduled on the couple's request for an injunction to uh, whether to block uh, this uh, data's information from being, again, released uh, to the public. Uh, before we let you go, uh, John Kogan, again, associate professor at UConn Law School, uh, do we know how other states handle uh, this type of request where there's school-by-school vaccination? data? Generally, uh, this, the, uh, uh, th- this information is public information, and it's typically being released in states that have a program to collect and release the data. So as far as I know, this is, uh, if not the first, uh, uh, you know, one, uh, just a few of the uh, 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 states where somebody has tried to block the release of this kind of data. Mm-hmm. Again, I want to thank uh, Professor John Kogan from UConn Law School for joining us today so we can understand a little bit more about uh, what's happening behind the scenes related to uh, the school-by-school vaccination data that's uh, expected to be released by the state of Connecticut in mid-October. John, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Uh, today's show was produced by Carmen Baskoff. Uh, special thanks to our technical producer, Kion Wolf, and Lydia Brown was on the phones today. I want to let tell you that our show on Thursday, uh, we're going to be looking at how the path to college can be a daunting one, especially when you consider the cost of tuition these days. So on the next Where We Live, uh, we're going to hear from financial advisors and other experts on how to afford a college degree. And, of course, we want to hear from you. That's coming up Thursday. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.